AGM, always a big moment, along with a remarkable tale about a former Wales international. Welcome to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. We'll hear about the Antarctic Fire Angels, the former Wales international Rebecca O'Connor, skiing more than 1,000 kilometres to the south pole. That's coming up. But we'll start with the WIU AGM, a motion about the length of time people can serve on the board, which will be revisited as we're about to hear, but otherwise mainly agreement. Afterwards, Richard Collier-Kiwi spoke to Rob Cole. The one Wales strategy you were talking about was, you know, I thought interesting, and it's the one thing that came glaringly obvious out of the report is that there was no strategy. So that's going to be a great piece of work along with what you're doing for the women with their sort of programme and things. So that's two huge pieces of work that will probably give you in your second hundred days rather than your first a chance to plan moving forward. Yeah absolutely I mean they are two big pieces of work. I think the work on the women's strategy is actually relatively far advanced Mm. But obviously I want that to fit in with the overarching strategy as well. Mm. And Abby is absolutely committed to taking the WRU through what I would call a very inclusive process for that strategy. We'd like to talk to clubs, the regions, our sponsors, but to deliver a strategy in the first six months of this calendar year. And that overall overarching policy, when you came in, was that something that you identified as being a weakness? Yes, yeah, I think so. I mean, lots of people <coughs> said to me that the WRU does not have a strategy. Mm. And frankly, whether it does or not, if most people think it doesn't, it probably doesn't. Mm. So that to me, it's not just about creating the strategy, it's about then communicating it. Because that, together with culture, are the two things that enable you to help an organisation and everyone within it to face in the same direction. If people don't know what you're trying to do, if they don't understand the culture within which they're trying to operate, it's very difficult for you to line people up. And we're not talking just the WRU here, we're also talking about the regional clubs, the community clubs. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big deal if, you, if people don't feel you have it. Because interesting, you know, you're close to 500 employees now. That's a big workforce. And one of the difficulties that I'm sure you've seen and Abby will find is that they're all over the place. Yes, it's a distributed workforce. Yeah, and, and that's not easy to handle. Yeah. But at least if everyone's got the, uh, the same work manual, absolutely, you can all hopefully move forward in the right way. Yeah, and that's really the point. I mean, I think it's... We want to be really clear on what our priorities are, we want to be clear on how we want to implement our priorities. And if we're clear on those two things, I think we can reasonably expect the people who work with us, our colleagues, to actually all be pulling in the same direction. We've been through a period now where money has been the only key factor. Yeah. I'm sure it does remain so, and I'm sure that's equally as big a pressure on you. But what we've seen in the last week and we've heard over the last year is that there's more to it than that. Yeah, I think there is. I mean... Of course, money is vitally important. I mean, um, the WIU only exists to channel money into the community game and the region's game and to be the sort of association of rugby clubs that sort of administers the sport, if you will. But really, there is money. Obviously, there's money. A big part is not... I mean, a big part is actually getting more money. Absolutely right. But it's actually what you use the money for and prioritising the spend. And that's the thing that the strategy should tell you about. On that deadly issue of money, 27.7 million I think it was for CVC for the regions. Have they received all of that? So there's two deals with CVC. One of those deals was to do with the URC 
and we have received our final payment on that just at the very beginning of our current financial year. The other CVC deal was in relation to the Six Nations and we're about halfway through that. But what about Europe as well? So Europe is caught up in the first of those. Of that 27.7 million, are you committed to passing it all on to them or not? We're committed to passing most of it on to them. It's all in accordance with the PRA. I think it's the first time we've had a, a concern from the top table, so to speak, about income from ticket sales. There's always been a, a thought, but I know there's inflationary pressure, but if they keep on rising the prices, then that is going to put people out of the marketplace, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and we've got to be conscious of that. So, you know, we're looking at how we sell our tickets at the moment, we're looking at how we distribute our tickets at the moment, and we do want to make sure that people can come to our matches. We, we want to fill that stadium for every match, that has to be our goal. Because part of the problem with increasing the ticket price is it changes the audience. Does that enter the equation as well? The way we're thinking about it is that we want different experiences for different people in the stadium. Frankly, some people are prepared to pay a lot of money mm. for a very unique experience, mm. and we want to be able to deliver that. There are some families that want to come who can't afford to pay top prices for those tickets, and nor would that be appropriate either in terms of mm. what they want to see happen in the stadium. We need to create family zones and places where people feel very safe to bring their children. So I, I think you can see us looking at different experiences for different fans but hopefully they'll all be brilliant. But of course the Prince Valley Stadium as it is now is just a huge cash cow for the game, isn't it? If we didn't have that, we'd be in a, a very precarious position. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the Principality Stadium is the main generator of income. All, you know, the matches that happen there and some of the events that now happen there are the main generator of income for the game. So your first 100 days, 18 <laughs> weeks, I think you said, yep. we're not going to judge you on that, obviously. <laughs> uh, how should we judge you moving forward and when will, I guess, that first quarterly meeting of the new oversight group will be another salutary moment? Yeah, I mean, I hope, hopefully there'll be positive moments as well. Mm. So, you know, we've committed to reporting quarterly and my ambition is to have the first quarterly report issued in the first week of January and that will be then considered in due course with that oversight body. Mm. But that is only looking at some of the remedial aspects of what we're doing. The board will also set an agenda of our strategy and implementing our strategy. Mm. And that's also an exciting part yeah. of the future as well. Yeah. So we hope to focus some of our time going yes. forward on that now. And finally, the, uh, the decision by the clubs to overturn or change one of the things, are you confident that will get changed back when you come back to them when to tick that box of the nine years? Yeah, so this was a very difficult issue. I mean, it was very difficult timing. Mm. I mean, we firmly believe that if you're a board member, you've got a maximum term of nine years in total, three terms of three years. Mm. If you're a member of council, we believe that's also the right thing to happen. But recognising that that's a volunteer post as well, mm. and there are many people who've served rugby clubs for a long period of time, we do think it's important that there should be a fallow period after those three periods of three mm. years. When you can have new people come into significant roles in the Welsh Rugby Union mm. and then after that fellow period people can come back and try and be re-elected again so we believe that is the right answer and unfortunately we weren't able to get that as a primary motion here today 
So I made a commitment to bring it back to an EGM within the next six months. You have to absolutely respect the volunteers yeah. and the commitment they've put in for many, many years, which has been incredibly powerful and positive for Welsh rugby. But equally, you have to say that there is a time for change as well. Yeah. And you do want fresh blood in. You want people who see things from a different perspective. You want younger people involved. You want women involved. And yeah, things have to change going forward. listening to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. So, plenty of detail there and clearly much more to come. But now, a remarkable challenge. The Antarctic Fire Angels have already started their epic journey across Antarctica. Two firewomen who want to show what is possible. Georgina Gilbert and former Wales international Rebecca Openshaw-Rowe. As I say, they have already started their journey. You can track their progress on antarcticfireangels.co.uk. But before setting off, Rebecca spoke to Graham Gillespie to explain what it's all about. So it was two years ago since we last chatted. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. When we last talked, there was, what, five members in the group? Now it's down to two. How has that come about? Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's been a lot of goings on since uh, since we spoke two years ago. And um, basically, we've it's just been kind of circumstances that have, you know, that we've ended up with too. We had um, a couple of medical issues come about from going on our cold weather trips, which unfortunately um, two of the girls had to withdraw due to that. I mean, one of them being Nikki got frostbite on uh, one of our trips in Norway and had to be um, evacuated by helicopter, which was <laughs> which was exciting for us, but not for poor Nikki. So sort of the realisation that, um, you know, she couldn't go to Antarctica, not with the, you know, with the job that we have as firefighters. Your hands are um, more important, I think, than us going to Antarctica. And then the final one, poor Becky, we just didn't have enough money for three of us to go. So it was either... Two of us go or no one goes, which is quite brutal for um, Becky. She was kind of a latecomer to the team. So it was just a case of last in, first out, really. And it was probably that was the worst, the worst part of this and, and um, sort of on the team side of things, because, you know, obviously telling someone that we just don't have the money for you to go was pretty, yeah, yeah. It was pretty horrific, you know, really, really disappointing and sad for her. And, you know, really tough, tough for myself and George to have to deliver that. So how brutal has the fundraising side of things been? Because I can only assume it has been pretty demanding, is it? Yeah. Um, I mean, when we first started this project four years ago, I think we had no idea quite how tough and all-consuming the fundraising side of things would be, I think. I mean, I know we've had we've had COVID and the global financial downturn, which really hasn't helped but yeah, it is the worst and toughest part of doing any expedition. I'm sure many people who've done or are doing expeditions would um, probably agree with us. I think it just it's relentless because, you know, if we just think, oh, God, I can't, you know, I can't be bothered to to send out emails and research companies and people and things. We don't go on the expedition. So it's kind of you've got to keep going on that, you know, on that fundraising train. But it is really draining. And um, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. You know, one minute you're on a high because you've had some great meetings with a company and it's been really positive and you're, you're really excited about it. And then the next minute you're on a massive downer because, you know, they've said we can't support you or, or something. So it's it's been a real, real waves of highs and lows. Have there ever been times when you think, oh, why are we doing this? Um, I don't think so. You know, I think um, it's 
specifically you know for myself and George who are now left in the team I think it, it, it has been incredibly difficult with the fundraising and that you know it has been it's been frustrating but I don't think we've ever thought oh, why are we doing this you know it's almost pushed us to to keep going and work harder because of how tough it is and maybe as a female team we're maybe not getting not getting the funding that we should have and that maybe a male team would get so I think it just pushes us to keep going and I mean if we you know we're, we're trying to be visible role models for women not just in the fire service but everyone out there and I think you know we've got a duty to keep going and, and keep pushing forwards. Just remind us the whole reason for this expedition you know what's behind it? Well I mean, myself and George, you know, growing up, I think people of our age probably were told that as a girl, you know, you, you can't do that because you're a girl or you shouldn't be doing that because you're a woman. Or do you think you should do that as a female? And, uh, you know, we, we don't want that to be something that future generations have to deal with. You know, it should, gender shouldn't be a barrier to trying to achieve things or trying things. And um, we want it to always just be, you know, it's not even thought about. You just do what you're doing. It doesn't matter what your gender is. So that's a big thing for us. And then the other thing is just to be visible role models, um, especially as firefighters, because, you know, there's only, what I think, 8% of operational firefighters in the whole of the UK are female. So, you know, it's a very small percentage still. So we want to try and push that percentage and just be visible to show women that this is a job that women can do and that we do need women in the job. You know, the communities are diverse and we need a diverse workforce. So when we first spoke about this I think like what we just said was like a couple of years ago at that point I don't think you could even ski could you no we couldn't <laughs> which is a bit you know considering you're going to the uh, Antarctic you think uh yeah but uh talk us through some of the stuff you've done between then and now to prepare for the, the expedition because I know you've actually been abroad now and not just use Barry Beach for instance uh pulling sleds as yeah. Said, haven't you? yeah yeah Yes, yeah, so the last couple of years, we've spent um, a lot of time in Norway and Sweden training now, doing sort of specific expedition training. The first couple of training trips, that was, like you said, learning to Nordic ski, which was um, highly amusing at the beginning. Spent a lot of time on the floor. Um, I certainly spent a lot of time falling over, probably around 20 times a day. And um, I was absolutely covered in bruises. And then just learning things like just surviving in the cold, you know, and putting your tent up on the ice and the snow, which is so alien, you know, to most people in Britain. You know, we don't have a lot of snow very often. Cooking inside your tent and not burning the tent down, which, you know, we have come close a few times, if I'm honest. That would be very embarrassing as firefighters if we burnt our own tent down. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, general survival when we're out skiing all day, um, how to layer your clothing, looking out for sort of signs of crevasses, signs of bad weather coming in. So um, really learned from, from complete novices over the last two years how to be a polar explorer. And it's been great fun, to be honest. It's been a real journey just doing that. And we've had brilliant experiences over our time in Norway and Sweden, which has been amazing already, you know, before we even go to Antarctica. Was there any stage, do you think, oh, through all this demanding training that you think, oh, I should have stuck with rugby? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've got to be honest, um, there was, yeah, there was um, a point, our, our final trip, um, we spent three weeks in Norway up on the um, Hardangavida Plateau, which is where everyone does their polar training. It's where Amazon and Scott and Shackleton did some of their training as well. And um, it was minus 30 for a good week while we were up there. And, um, Which is still considerably a... warmer than what you're going to be in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. It will be. Yeah, it will be. But um, there was a few mornings where we would wake up, you know, at six a.m. to to get ready for the day, and the whole tent was frozen on the inside. There was freezing fog. 
inside the tent. My sleeping bag was frozen on the top and inside my sleeping bag, it was also frozen. And I just thought, what, what am I doing? You know, this is, oh, this, it was so, you know, it was so tough. It was really resilience building and it made us question what are we doing? Oh, you know, do we really want to do this? And there was definitely a few mornings where I had those questions, certainly. But, um, you know, so what got you got through those tough times then? Yeah, definitely. I think once, you know, once you got out of that sleeping bag and um, got the cooker on and just started the routine again for the day, you know, and you got outside and a lot of the time, you know, it's absolutely beautiful up there in Norway. And you kind of, um, you know, I'd have to chat to George. I was sharing a tent with her and, you know, we just kind of motivated each other, really. And we just, you know, we're a bit silly and myself and George and um, we'd have a laugh and a joke. And and then it kind of, you know, those doubts would disappear, really, I think. And um you know, the realisation of what you're, why we're doing it as well. You know, I think it's good to have those thoughts and it is a process that you should go through because we need to be tested before we go to Antarctica. You go to Chile to prepare. What's between now and actually starting your expedition? Talk us through that. I can't quite believe that we're at this point now. It, keep our bodies strong and, and keep ticking over, making sure we avoid any injuries and illness now because, you know, at this point it's quite critical that we keep ourselves healthy and, and well before we go. And then um, lots of kind of just um, deciding, do we really need this bit of equipment or not? Um, because weight is a huge thing for us. Testing all the equipment as well, making sure everything's working fine, making sure we know exactly how how to use some of the tech equipment we've got. So, yeah, just creating spreadsheets, basically, of everything we've got. Looking at our food as well, because obviously that's huge, um, the nutrition side of things. So um, buying all of our food that we need, making lists of what we need to buy when we're out in, in Chile. And then the other thing is just spending time with our friends and family, I think, because we're going to be away obviously, for, for what, two and a half months. So um, trying to have a bit of quality time now with friends and family before we leave, I think, is the other thing. And um, probably just enjoying being in a house with um, com- home comforts before we uh, yeah. end up living in a tent for a couple of months. So uh, does hitting rucks and jumping in line outs prepare you for pulling a sled? Uh, how many miles is it that you're, you're actually going to be covering? It's just over 700 miles. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, I'd say certainly, yeah, for me, I think, you know, I'm dragging the sled behind me, which probably weighs, it's, it's about 85 to 90 kilos. So it probably weighs the same amount as me. So I'm basically dragging myself behind me for that amount of time. And the sled will get lighter as we eat our food, but I don't think we'll feel it because it's so gradual. But I think, yeah, just you kind of that robustness you need to have for rugby and, um, and just, you know, as a second row, I was always doing all the grunt work and the scrummaging and the and the rucking and things, I think that certainly um, definitely um, helped me with preparation for this. And I think it will help me that resilience I think you get from rugby, especially, you know, getting all the knocks. And definitely, probably, I'm sure, you know, we're going to have a lot of aches and pains, maybe some injuries while we're out there. And I think, you know, with rugby, a lot of people say you you train through your injuries. You, you know, most people play covered in tape and they've got some niggles or maybe an injury and you just get on with it and I think that's definitely going to help me um, while we're in Antarctica. How do you actually get there? So we fly to Chile and then we spend a week there prepping all of our kit and our food and then we fly on the 18th of November we fly then on a on a plane to Antarctica right and we land on um, Antarctica on a, a at a place called Union Glacier which is like the base camp for the logistics company that organize everything. Right. And then from there, we'll um, ski them straight from there to the South Pole. And theoretically, how many days are you hoping to do that? Around 45 days, we hope. I think it's very weather dependent and obviously how we're feeling and how fast we move. But that's kind of, 
an average of 25 kilometers a day we need I'm gonna to say maths isn't great but uh that sounds about 25k a day yeah which doesn't sound a lot but i've been watching no. Bogle on channel five recently and uh you know it is isn't it yeah that's it and then um, i think it's the daily grind so you know 25 kilometers it doesn't seem a lot we're on nordic skis but we are pulling you know 90 kilos behind us so that certainly slows our um, progress down and also you've got you know the terrain to deal with so it's not completely flat it's quite lumpy and bumpy and then you've got the weather as well. So if there's, you know, they have a lot of storms in Antarctica and very windy. So that is, you know, if we're going into a headwind, um, it could be sort of 60, 70 miles an hour. We're not going to be moving very fast. So um, and I think that, you know, day after day after day of trying to do 25 kilometres, it really takes its toll. You're going to miss out on Christmas then, are you? Yeah, Christmas and New Year will be in a in a huge cold white space. Yeah, <laughs> how are you going to uh, celebrate New Year's Eve? <laughs> yeah, well, um, we are taking a little bit of Bailey's and port with us, <laughs> and we've got a tablet, so we'll be downloading some Christmas films for Christmas Day, and I will be taking a little Christmas pudding with me as well. So, um, and then New Year's Welsh Eve... cakes as well. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, actually. I think they'll survive in the um, cold as well, Welsh cakes. Yeah, so we'll, we're going to take a few little treats, I think, to um, definitely keep the morale up and help us along the way. So, yeah, New Year's Eve, we'll probably just have our own little party, little, own little party in the tent. It will be, um, yeah, it will be a very different Christmas and New Year this year, definitely. But one I'm sure we won't forget, anyway. Does any of it actually daunt you? Yeah, I've definitely had started to have a few um, sort of little anxiety pangs and... Um, and dreams, I think now we're getting a lot closer. You know, I've I've, I've um, started to get a little bit excited as well, and I've seen you know things about Antarctica on the telly, and um, yeah. I, yeah, I've also had a bit of anxiety for sure. I think is the cold going to get me? You know, that's I think our biggest worry about the cold and cold weather injuries, your hypothermia and frostbite and things. And um, I do sort of worry about that. You know, myself and George, am I gonna? <laughs> are we gonna fall out? Uh, and I'm sure we will fall out a few times, or have a few little. Um, um, arguments along the way you know it's a long time to just be with one other person so there's definitely that and I think the worry of injury as well you know is my body going to hold up am I you know are my limbs going to survive the, the 700 miles so I definitely definitely have some anxiety over things. And how will you uh, be in contact with anyone while you're doing it? We have two sat phones that we have to take and a Garmin inReach so on the Garmin inReach, we're able to text, which is amazing. So, um, I will, you know, every day we'll I'll probably be texting um, my behalf and, and things. And then once a week, we can make we'll probably make a phone call. So I'll, I'll ring them home once a week just to, you know, give them an update on how things are and, and just hear their voice and, and then, you know, be reassured that we're still OK, I think. Yeah. So keeping in contact is quite for where we are and being so remote. It's actually apparently quite quite good with communications people can follow our journey at home so we're going to have a map on our website it's like a tracking tracking map and you'll be able to follow us so we'll have our progress um, every day and we're also going to leave audio messages on the map so you'll be able to click on the audio message and you can hear an update from us hopefully we'll be doing that every day and then we'll try and get some pictures out as well so people will be able to follow our journey while we're out there as well well, I was just going to give you uh, one question about the women. Have, have you seen the Wales Women's Rugby progress and how they're going? And, you know, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm absolutely gutted that I'm not still playing rugby, to be honest. <laughs> no, you know, I would have, you know, that's, you know, everyone's dream to be a you know, professional rugby player and, and get actually paid to do it as a job. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's amazing that we are now getting to that point, I think, with the Welsh women's team and that they've actually got a good, decent number of people now that are being paid full time. 
thank God, you know, about time it's starting to, um, you know, start to get the coverage that it should should have. And I hope now this will be the catalyst for something bigger now for Welsh women's rugby. Quite a challenge. Remember, you can follow their progress on antarcticfireangels.co.uk. So plenty more to report on next week. But until then, from the Welsh Rugby Union podcast, goodbye.